0: Big
1: stories, big
0: guests, the big
1: picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays twelve thirty to three
2: seven seventy CHQR. I want to turn our attention right now to to the bigger question of vaccine development, right? And and you know we can talk about what we do between now and then to keep this virus in check and and resume some sense of normalcy. But but long term, the end game is is developing an effective vaccine. So there's a lot going on, as you can imagine, in developing a vaccine, almost a race of sorts, as uh, we're we're seeing in different countries, uh, different companies, research institutes looking at uh, how best to inoculate the public uh, so that we can kind of more or less, I suppose, defeat this virus and try to get back to what normal once was. Now, there's the question of, you know, how effective can a vaccine be against a virus like this? What kind of vaccine might be most effective? How often are people going to have to be vaccinated? You know, and part of that involves learning about this virus as we go. Well, joining us to talk more about uh, all of these efforts, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Jason uh, Kindrichuk, who is assistant professor, also Canada Research Chair in Emerging Viruses at the University of Manitoba. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program.
1: Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Uh,
2: you know, it's interesting because, as you know, you sort of describe it almost like you know, there, there's a race to develop a vaccine. But, you know, as much as there's competition, I suppose, there's also a lot of collaboration. Maybe you could speak to that first of all. How much international cooperation are, are we seeing on the vaccine side?
1: Uh, you know, this has really been kind of a, an, an unprecedented event to me, not only in, in obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, but I think, the actual collaboration in real time between people across the globe and, and we've seen that you know basically since uh you know since the, the emergence of this virus at, at the end of december in 2019. um you know social media has been an amazing platform for, for getting people across the globe together uh we, you know we've seen just an unprecedented amount of, of collaboration and, and push to try and actually get um you know information out to the public but also you know some some viable vaccine and therapeutic options out to the public as as quick as possible so for me it's it's actually been i think one of the the few bright spots in in all of this is understanding um you know just how quickly the scientific community and and the research community in general has been able to come together on on this uh pandemic
2: yeah it really is impressive uh that that's certainly the case i I know it's you know given how much hope is invested in in a vaccine there's going to be that temptation to you know, almost take shortcuts, right? We want to try to do this in as expedited a manner as possible. But when it comes to something like a vaccine, there's not a lot of room for shortcuts. So how do we balance the urgency with the proper scientific protocol?
1: Oh, carefully. Um, you know, yeah. I think that's kind of my, my best answer. I mean, you know, right now, we obviously know that there's, uh, you know, there's a, a stronger and stronger public push to try and and get through uh, physical distancing as, as quick as possible, because obviously the economic toll setting in um, but, but we're still seeing, you know, lots of cases. We, you know, the recent data coming out of Russia suggests that they're just starting to kind of climb into their exponential phase. So, you know, I think that we're, we're seeing a general push to try and get something uh, delivered quickly. Now, the, the benefit is, is that we've had you know, quite a bit of time to, to look at developing vaccine platforms. The, the last 10 years, it's been unprecedented with how things have moved forward uh, scientifically and technologically. And, and I think, you know, it, it is feasible to say that in 12 months, we could have, you know one candidate, uh, but more than likely multiple candidates that will uh, actually be uh, potentially deployed out in the field so I, and that 's you know in, in terms of uh, the grand scheme of things for for vaccine development a twelve month turnaround time is is unprecedented but but I think we 're actually approaching that uh,
2: what did you make there the um, the comments over the week in Sarah Gilbert at Oxford University suggesting that you know even by September they might have something ready kind of a, a six month timetable oh. that seems remarkably optimistic uh but but what did you make of that
1: yeah you know i, I think a, a lot of people are are looking at you know if if everything goes right if all of the testing looks good if we uh you know in, in the early clinical trials uh, if we see that that people are getting robust immune responses and that we're not seeing uh any toxicity concerns you know if, if basically if all the stars align then then possibly maybe that would be a consideration i i'm still you know i grew up in Saskatchewan so I you know, mm-hmm. I, I I guess maybe I'm somewhat of a, a sucker for defeat sometimes. So <laughs> right. I look at it and say, okay, yeah, six months, best case scenario. But let's let's think again back about about twelve months. And I think that's yeah. something that we need to think about in terms of our messaging. Is there, there's always a best case scenario, but we also want to ensure that that the public understands um, that, uh, that you know that we're looking at this more from from a long term game.
2: Right. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. I, I mean, there, there is the option. I know uh, Bill Gates has talked about, uh, you know, investing considerable sums in this because it is a financial gamble once we have some promising candidates uh, to, to start the, the, the production side, the manufacture side, so that once one of them gets to the finish line, you know, we, we have a large number of vaccines ready to go. And that's probably going to mean destroying large amounts of, of the failed candidates. But how might that shave some time off, off of this whole process?
1: Well, you know, I listen. As a, as a basic researcher, you know myself, who's you know very reliant on, on getting funding to, to keep the, the lab afloat. I mean, ultimately, if, if you see an injection of, of a massive amount of capital, I and mean, in particular, if it is to you know essentially fast track um, you know develop, development and put essentially everything that's needed to try and, and get that uh, that therapeutic out to, to market, um, you know, I listen, it, it's going to to kind of stir the pot and get a lot of people working very quickly, and I think you're going to get the brightest minds possible. That are doing this work, um, so you know I think that that it will really you know kind of set the tone for, for how we want to greet this. And and again, at, at the end of the day, listen, this is the unfortunate side is this is not the last pandemic we're going to face. Um, you know, much as people in 1918 said and it have been saying ever since then, with uh, with subsequent pandemics. Um, so we you know we have to look at not only getting past COVID-19, but also again once you know trying to set ourselves up for what is going to happen, uh, you know, in, in, in the, you know, the next bug that comes around the corner. And we can't predict when that will be, but we, we do know for sure that, that we need to be prepared.
2: Well, and yeah, I mean, hopefully this will be the wake-up call. I mean, if this isn't, it's hard to imagine what might be. Uh, and, and even just to look, I mean, for example, as I understand, uh, Moderna is one of the companies that that's, you know, sort of initially out front when it comes to vaccine development because they're building off, where things were in terms of developing a SARS or a mERS vaccine but you know with with hindsight it seems we can look and say well if only we had succeeded in developing a, a SARS vaccine or a mERS vaccine uh, how much further along we would be right now right it was one of those just seems like another of those missed opportunities
1: uh, so, you know that's the frustrating part with science is that unfortunately hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? And listen, we yeah. I, I'm I'm you know predominantly an Ebola guy on top of being a coronavirus guy. Right. Um, we we said this you know during the the twenty fourteen uh, epidemic when I was in West Africa and said listen we we've had vaccine candidates that have been floating around for a while. Um, why didn't we have something ready? And I think again it comes back to that sense of you know hindsight's twenty twenty, but you also you need to get um, a lot of people invested in, in the idea that this that this needs to be pushed forward, and, and I think hopefully what we've seen now, um, you know, we are basically people across the globe that have seen not only the healthcare toll but also the economic toll when something like this happens when we don't have a vaccine and we don't have therapeutics, and you know I, I'm hoping that we we get public support um, behind us and as well as uh, government support. To, to to really invest in this. This is you know this is an area that we know we, we need to be doing better in, uh, and I think we have the talent in Canada and, and, and worldwide to to be doing a lot better than we are. We we just need uh, the the investment and in, in funding and the opportunity to to actually push something forward.
2: Mm-hmm. It's interesting too. Some of the the uh, vaccines that are in development, and I think people are more familiar with inactivated vaccines, attenuated vaccines, because that's that's typically what what we use. But it's also you know, we're seeing here the idea of, of DNA-based or RNA-based vaccines, and, and that seems like something new. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, some DNA vaccines uh, and RNA vaccines have been you know kind of in, in the pipeline for a while. Um, you know, th- this idea that we could potentially get um, you know the uh, you know the specific antigen or, or the the protein or the component of the virus or the the pathogen. That induces an immune response um, being being produced without actually giving us uh, the the bug itself, and, and that would ultimately elicit a, a, an antibody response, and, and ultimately gives protection. Um, you know, we, we've seen varying varying success, uh, specifically within um, livestock. So, you know, Veto in Saskatchewan did a lot of uh, DNA vaccine work, um, and, and has continued to do a lot of DNA vaccine work. Um, we, we've also seen a, a lot of other platforms that have moved forward as well with you know trying to uh, provide the components of of a virus without actually getting uh, the, the virus itself, and you know, I think that ultimately we're we're still trying to figure out the you know what the immune response is and and how the immune response works. And and listen, immunity has been evolving over you know thousands of years. Um, it, it's difficult for us to try and figure out uh, very quickly you know how to how to cater to it. But there are um, there's some pretty amazing uh, technologies that are being used now and, and platform technologies like we've seen with Ebola with the BSV. Uh, you know, backbone uh, for for that virus that, um, you know, have have given really good protection and now may actually serve as, you know, kind of a a plug and play type of uh, vaccine delivery system.
2: And in terms of understanding, you know, what the immune response is, and that's part of understanding this virus, uh, you know, whether a more serious illness confers more immunity than a mild illness, how long that immunity lasts, right? I mean, as we try to understand that, how, how important is that information, then, when it comes to, to vaccine development?
1: Oh, It's, it's massively important. Listen, this, this is part of the reason why I'm a virologist and not an immunologist. Uh, you <laughs> know, I, can, I can do things in a lot more simpler terms. Um, for, you know, for, for this virus, you know, what we need to understand, and, and uh, we, we definitely don't have a good idea yet, is if somebody is naturally infected, if they have, you know, like, said mild disease versus uh, severe disease, what does that ultimately result in as far as their uh, their long-term protection so first of all do they get a long-term uh antibody response um you know beyond the infection itself and and we think that the likelihood is they should but we don't know how long that would last and how specific it is so you know with the, the trouble for us right now is that this virus has been around for just over three months uh you know now getting close to four months we're trying to understand as quickly as possible what this virus is and what it does it's been a little bit unpredictable We can confer some knowledge that we learned from SARS and MERS in the past and other coronaviruses, but we are, you know, basically starting at at square one with understanding, um, you know, how people broadly react across different age groups and across, uh, you know, different regions of of the globe and across both sexes. So we're really trying to fast-track all this knowledge into, you know, as short of a time period as possible, but we need to understand that to to be able to understand um, how the vaccine ultimately is likely going to work.
2: Well, and I guess the other question is, I mean, you know, part of understanding this virus is understanding, you know, how widespread it was, et cetera, who had it, and that involves serological testing. But is it relevant in terms of a vaccine? I mean, would, would a vaccine only be given to people who hadn't had the virus, or or, or, or does that matter? Well, you know, again, I,
1: I'm thankful that there are people that, uh, you know, that are, are vaccinologists and, and public health people that will be making these decisions. Mm-hmm. But I think I think we'll get a better idea, right? So. You know, ultimately, um, you know, because we don't know what the long-term immunity is, uh, you know, for somebody that's been infected and recovered, um, you know, the, the likelihood is that we're going to see. You know, I, I would think, at least from my own um, uh, premise, that uh, you know, that vaccination or, or therapeutics would roll out to the people that that are likely in in the highest um, you know concern group, uh, so the ones that are at the you know the most at risk, and then likely would you know start rolling down from there. And you know, the likelihood is as well, that people, even if they've been exposed, because we don't know what their long-term immune response looks like, um, you know, vaccination will likely, at, at the very least, give them a boost. Um, so, you know, it, it it will hopefully provide a little bit longer protection than what they would have naturally had. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think we're quite there yet.
2: Yeah, very interesting. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Professor Kindrich, I appreciate your insight on all of this, and uh, really appreciate you making some time for us here. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. All the best to you. Take care. Uh, that is Dr. Jason uh, Kindrachuk, Assistant Professor, University of Manitoba, Canada Research Chair in Emerging Viruses. Uh, so kind of an overview of, of where we're at in terms of vaccine development. And look, I mean, the good news is a lot of progress is being made. I mean, we should be careful about getting too optimistic. The idea of having a widely available vaccine in calendar year 2020, that doesn't seem realistic. That would be incredible if it, if it could happen. Um, But but remarkable progress is being made nonetheless. Now, certainly the case of when it comes to getting ahead of the covid-19 virus, uh, getting a handle on it, uh, that involves a lot of testing. And the more testing you can do, obviously, then the more you're aware of what's out there. Alberta has, has been a leader. Certainly, Alberta has done a great job when it comes to testing, the amount of testing we've been able to do here, our ability to continue ramping that up. That's been encouraging. And as the premier has talked about, that's going to be a big part of you know, the weeks and months ahead, our ability to continue testing, to identify cases as quickly as possible. Because once we start to get back to normal, that's going to be crucial. But testing is one side of that. and We often refer to uh, the two sides together, testing and tracing. Uh, testing uh, sick individuals, but also tracing other potential cases. Now, we're kind of doing it the old-fashioned way right now. We've got about three or 400 medical students that are helping Alberta Health Services, basically doing old-fashioned detective work, once we have confirmed cases, to figure out whether there are other potential cases linked to that, other individuals who perhaps ought to be tested, or at least to the very least to, to screen for symptoms. But that's probably ineffective as, as a tracing tool once we really start to ramp up testing. And what we can look to in other countries that have adopted this approach, South Korea, Taiwan, and others, is that technology is, is a part of it. Technology can be really effective in identifying those other potential cases. Now, I, I suppose it's a little more controversial and that there are privacy concerns when it comes to the use of this sort of technology. The idea that you would get a notification on your cell phone because the data shows that you were in close um, proximity to someone who is now a confirmed case. I mean, it's probably information you would want to have, but I guess the way in which you were notified might be a little unnerving. But joining us to talk a bit more about how this can be an effective tool and, and what this technology looks like, uh, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, uh, Daniel Liang, who is a founder and CEO of the company Live Now, L I V N A O, uh, which has developed this kind of technology and, and certainly willing to help put it to use if governments are willing. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Yeah,
0: thanks a lot for having me, Rob.
2: Uh, and by the way, and, and you've got much more at uh, the website, live slash COVID-19 about how this technology can be adopted uh, for this purpose. Uh, I- explain a little bit more what what testing and tracing involves and how technology can play a role in your view.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, so to give everyone a quick overview of what contact tracing is, it's something that's been used for hundreds of years to um, effectively trace and see um, a pandemic because right now the problem is with the virus you can't really see it it's an invisible enemy Um, and so traditionally how it's done is um, you have like you mentioned uh, hundreds of people talk to every single patient who is uh, is who has been tested positive and you go back and have them uh, tell you and make a list of everyone that they may have had contact with and um, everywhere they've been over the past 14 days um, in the effort of um, eventually contacting anyone who um, may have had contact with this person over the past 14 days and then asking them to self-isolate and um, Keep track of symptoms um, and to understand where this virus may have been. So that's what's being uh, done traditionally And that's how it's been done for, for, for quite a while
2: uh, Talk about the technology your company has developed and, and it's been used previously. How, how has it been used in the past?
0: Yeah, um, so the technology that we've developed is uh, based off of uh, the core um, product at LiveNow. Um, So we're not primarily a contact tracing company, we're primarily a mental health company. It just Mm. so happens that uh, contact tracing is kind of one of the inputs that we use um, in our passive mental health measurement uh, technology. So in terms of like the technology itself is, it basically takes the whole process I mentioned earlier talking to people to get their full history over 14 days and makes it completely instant. Um, and with more accuracy because you're not taking um, memory, like you're not relying on memory. And so um, countries like, um, like South Korea and Singapore um, have been using this technology and um, it has been able to help them um, effectively see the virus and understand where it is so that they can take more targeted approaches to testing and containment um, so that they can make sure that they are um, using their scarce resources in a more strategic manner. Um, and that's been effective at uh, both reducing the load on the healthcare system, but also um, helping the public, um, like keep their um, social interactions down if they might be infectious. Um, effectively yeah. helping with the curve.
2: Explain how it works on, on the on the technical side. What what is it in the devices that, that that's that's used?
0: Yeah. So the sensors that we use are your location and your Bluetooth sensors. Um, and so basically, what we do is. Uh, We anonymize that, we separate your personal profile, anything that could identify you and that data, and anything that could identify you um, stays on your phone um, until two conditions are met, which I'll get into later. Um, Everything else, the Bluetooth and location data that's anonymized will go to our server, and basically we create a log of anyone um, or any um, ID, we'll give them like a random ID so that we can't identify you, and we'll create a list of IDs that um, come into contact with um, any other ID that uh, may have come in or that uh, has tested positive as COVID. So basically what we're doing is we're creating a chain of anonymous IDs um, that may have come in contact with COVID. And then if your phone, your profile um, matches that ID, then that phone will trigger a notification. And so um, when you get that notification, let's assume that you had contact with a COVID case, Um, your phone will see that that phone's ID has been flagged. Um, and that's without us knowing who you are, your identity. And then it'll provide you with a notification tell you may have come in contact with COVID-19 um, in downtown uh, yesterday. And then it'll provide you with a couple of next steps. So next steps are um, we provide a risk assessment or symptom tracker that you can use every day to understand what kind of next steps you need to take. Do you need mm-hmm. to go to the hospital or are you okay with staying at home and self-isolating? Um, and that's done daily to understand what you need to do. Um, And then one other thing that we present users with the option with is they have the option of sharing their identity or their profile with their local health agency. And so that's a completely optional step. They don't need to do that. There's no consequence if they don't do that. But the benefit of doing that is um, if that user does end up at the hospital and they do need care, the physicians will have their 14-day history of symptoms available um, to make better clinical decisions.
2: So I mean it sounds like there's there's room there to address the the privacy concerns. Yeah. Right. So you, yeah, you think totally. we can um, we can strike that balance?
0: Yeah, I think um there are like definitely um there will be people who will be concerned like about the privacy about the anonymized data. I mean there definitely are ways to un anonymize that data, but mm-hmm. um as a uh, mental health care company, this is not kind of our our core business. Um, We believe that um, if we can't, if our our customers can't trust us with their privacy and protecting it, we won't have customers. And so we're incentivized to ensure that customers um, and users, um, we protect their privacy and that's our top priority. And we don't share any of that data with the government until after that user provides um, that permission. Um, And so we, like, take a really, really hard stance um, as a healthcare company on um, the privacy efforts. And we do everything that we can to make sure that so we respect that. We're also a HIPAA-compliant company, um, if uh, anyone knows what that, what that means.
2: Right. Uh, so w- what are you hearing in terms of, uh, you know, the appetite on the part of governments to deploy uh, a testing and, and contact tracing strategy that involves technology? Is, is there an appetite for that?
0: Yeah, so I think um, in, there's definitely an appetite, um, at least very clearly outside of Canada. We're talking to a couple of governments um, outside of Canada. However, in, in, in Canada, unfortunately, we've only really had a little bit of traction with the Ontario Ministry of Health. Um, I think that might be for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, public health must be really, really busy right now, and so I don't even know if we're getting in front of them. Um, and number two, I, I understand some governments, um, like the BC government, for example, are really um, scared of the potential um, privacy optics um, around using this sort of solution. And I don't think that um, they've had a chance to really dive into um, some of the things that I mentioned on how we're protecting user privacy. Um, so I think some governments are either ruling it out um, completely or um, the other ones just aren't moving fast enough or are, are not really seeing the solution yet.
2: Well, I, I think it's probably going to have to be a part of the solution. And as you say, maybe we're, we're thinking mm-hmm. more short-term at the moment, but I, I think longer-term, it's something we got to talk more about. Uh, people can read more, as mentioned, LiveNow.com, L-I-V-N-A-O, and uh, LiveNow.com slash COVID-19. Uh, Daniel, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot, Rob. Have a good one.
2: All right, you as well. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Daniel Leung. He is uh, founder and CEO of LiveNow company based uh, in uh, Vancouver and also Silicon Valley. Um, so they're saying, look, we, we have the technology. We could do this uh, if if governments are looking to partner. And, you know, I suppose there are probably other companies that could as well. You know, is it something we turn to Apple and Facebook, you know, the big giants, Google? Uh, or do we find other companies potentially to partner with on this? Uh, so LibNow has a bit of a head start given that the uh, the app they've already developed uh, and is being used uh, can be adapted this way to be used for this purpose. And as they say, there there are steps you can take to anonymize that data. But are people going to be comfortable with that? Somebody's going to know. The idea that you're getting a text on your device telling you to either watch for symptoms or to get tested means that somebody somewhere knows where you were uh, at a particular time on a particular day. and And not everybody's going to be okay with that. If the objective is to to minimize the impact of this virus so that we can resume more of a sense of normalcy, I think people will, you know, take a different view of it. Is it does it justify does one justify the other? All right. Welcome back. Now, look, in, in the meantime, as we try to get a handle on this this virus, we're very much in the day to day here and now of trying to respond in, in a public health respect. Right. But uh, obviously, there there are big questions about how we got to this point and how we hold China accountable. Right. And we certainly have a good understanding of where this virus originated and when. Uh, And we certainly have a good understanding as well of how China uh, initially responded to this uh, in the way they punished and silenced whistleblowers, for example. And so certainly there's going to be a need to deal, I think, with the way in which China has covered up uh, the origins of this pandemic and in the role in allowing it to escape, uh, escape from Wuhan, escape from Hubei province. And so we're, we're all dealing with that. So so there's certainly that side of the story, which might not seem as relevant in the immediacy of what we're dealing with on a daily basis, but it's such a huge part of the story. Uh, Released today is a new letter, an open letter, signed by more than 100 China experts and senior political figures, describing uh, the Chinese Communist Party government's cover-up of COVID-19 as China's Chernobyl moment, also urging uh, China Watchers uh, and others to uh, listen more closely uh, to those dissenting voices in China, the ones who have tried to warn us about all of this. Joining us uh, to talk more about this letter is uh, one of the signatories. Um, and by the way, you can read more at McDonaldLaurier.ca. Uh, but joining us on the line here this afternoon, very pleased to welcome the program Charles Burden, who was a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, he is also uh, with Brock University. Uh, an associate professor of uh, com- specializing in comparative politics uh, and Canada-China relations and human rights. One of the signatories is mentioned of this letter. Professor Burton, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
3: Good afternoon, Rob.
2: Uh, yeah, it's interesting to to phrase it this way, China's Chernobyl moment. And I think there, there are certainly a lot of parallels uh, to that situation. Why, why, in your view, is, is this um, an appropriate way of describing it?
3: Well, you know, the Chernobyl disaster really brought to the fore the failings of the Soviet system and eventually led to a, a general consensus that those Leninist institutions were not serving the interests of people very well. Now we have a situation here where, you know, we're fully aware that the Chinese government dissembled and distorted and withheld information about the coronavirus. Issuing politically motivated misinformation and you know the who may be collaborating with the Chinese regime. Maybe not uh, provided information to Canada, which informed our decision to not um, Stop the uh, the flow of of visitors from uh, the People's Republic of China until considerably later on in the in the game and um not to you know monitor them closely enough because china via the who had informed us that the uh, person-to-person transmission of the disease was not going on and you know we know that our own um teresa tam dr teresa tam our public health officer had repeated this WHO um, assertion based on the Chinese data at an early stage of the, of the situation. And therefore we didn't take the kinds of measures that we subsequently t- took when it became apparent that there was extensive human to human transmission of the coronavirus. So to some extent politically motivated um, misinformation by the Chinese Communist Party for their own reasons has led to unnecessary um, tragic death of Canadians because we weren't alerted soon enough in a timely enough fashion with enough information so that we could act appropriately uh, before the thing started to get out of control.
2: Right. And I suppose, I mean, there's two sides of it. There's ways in which China mishandled this, where, you know, they made mistakes uh, versus more deliberate measures uh, where, you know, that that things were being covered up, that China knew and and chose to to handle things a different way. How how do we differentiate between, you know, mistakes and cover ups?
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, every government of the world has... uh done some degree of miscalculation with regard to this virus. I mean, clearly the Canadian decision to send large quantities of uh, protective gear to China, um, in retrospect, turns out to have been a mistake because we now are short of these materials for um, our own uh, frontline health workers. And, you know, the American government under Donald Trump clearly had not uh, been willing to fully grasp the significance of the virus and engage in those isolation procedures early on. And as a result, they've got, you know, per capita four times as much uh, hospitalization and death as we have here in Canada. So, you know, governments make mistakes and uh, they should be accountable for them. But, you know, the main thing is that we have to fight the virus. The problem with China was the willful withholding of information information and not providing accurate, timely information to the WHO to pass on to the global community. So that's a different type of mistake because the Chinese government was fully aware of the human-to-human transmission and suppressed that information. And then, as you said in your introduction, the health workers in China who had information that there was a new SARS coming out that was transmitting human-to-human Uh, when they tried to alert their colleagues in other parts of China to this reality were then arrested by the police and forced to recant and of course in the case of Dr. Li Wenliang, an ophthalmologist at the hospital in Wuhan he then contracted the coronavirus and died. So, you know, from that point of view what China is doing is qualitatively different from the, um, you know, the, the, the liberal democracies that that may have not handled it as well as they could in retrospect but certainly are not suppressing information or deceiving um, other governments, international agencies and the public about the nature of this uh, crisis that we're currently facing. And it allows Canadians to act accordingly because we can trust the information we're getting from our government.
2: It's interesting, too, we look at how China responded to this, and you know again in hindsight that, that perhaps we should have heeded some of these warnings from uh, from our friends in in Taiwan because they know better than most uh, about trusting the the uh, government in Beijing uh, and as it turns out, they had very good reason to be suspicious of how Chinese officials were dealing with this.
3: Yes, they had intelligence about the human to human transmission and tried to um, convey that to the WHO and they were rebuffed. Taiwan, because of Chinese politics, is denied full membership of the WHO, so you know that doesn't make a lot of sense as the Taiwanese government's in full control of the island of Taiwan and therefore one certainly would expect for things like health and airlines that they should be uh, sitting at the table with the rest of us so that we can have a full exchange of all the data that we can to try and to the extent possible engage in coordinated activity to to stop the spread of disease and the death that's occurred. The other thing is that the Chinese government has um, tried to deflect attention from the People's Republic of China by the absurd contention that the virus was actually brought to China by U.S. military who participated in international military games in China in November of last year. So, you know, they're panicking, and it does make you think that they are more culpable than they're letting on so far, and Mm -hmm. uh, there's an article in the Washington Post today that suggests that the virus may in fact have been initially released because of inadequate safety procedures at a laboratory in Wuhan that was studying infected bats. So, you know, there's a lot going on here, and what we really want in the interests of humanity is honesty, transparency, and full disclosure of the data and you know the blame game uh we don't need to play that now what we need to be doing is saving lives
2: right which you know and that's it's an interesting question at this point i mean even if if china decides that it's going to be fully honest and transparent i mean how how will we know uh given the the um you know the justifiable mistrust we we would have and you know and again i mean even if we can you know pinpoint where the Chinese went wrong or or how they handled this is it a moot point, or I mean what what is the relevance of that going forward how do we deal with all of this
3: well I think that um, you know down the road when this is all over we have a good reason to doubt the honesty of the regime that they process information through their Chinese Communist Party Central Committee Department of Propaganda to serve their perception of Chinese state interests so it does it does question the extent to which we can trust them with regard to other international obligations, including to the UN, to the WTO, or the assurances that the Chinese government is giving us with regard to Huawei 5G. You know, I think that that's part of the Chernobyl moment, is that domestically in China, the Chinese people who have suffered so badly because of state mismanagement of the virus at the early stage with so much death, And um, abroad, where we have a similar thing, is causing us to really rethink how we can deal with that regime if they will not be honest and comply with the international rules-based order and and um, their obligations to the WTO to provide the uh, WHO, I'm sorry, uh, World Health Mm -hmm. Organization, with timely and accurate and full data, so that the world can respond appropriately.
2: You know, as it says in the letter here, it says we should pay greater attention to the voices of what can be termed the unofficial China. Independent-minded academics, doctors, entrepreneurs, citizen journalists, public interest lawyers, and and young students. Uh, and certainly there are those courageous voices. I mean, it can be hard for them to make their voices heard in the first place, let alone for us to pay attention to them. But but how do we begin to do that?
3: Well, certainly of all the people that uh, that are cited in the letter, they're all currently disappeared and presumably under the same sorts of regimes as our own uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor are, are facing, which is people who are completely innocent of any sort of criminality being subject to a sensory deprivation and intensive interrogation to make them recant and co- make false confessions. So from that point of view, it is very, very difficult for people in China to to have the courage to speak the truth to power, and to inform the global community about the dangers that were going on in in Wuhan, because everybody knows that if you don't comply with the Chinese Communist Party's discourse on anything, that you will have um, grave circumstances as a result. And it's, you know, because of the Chinese pervasive monitoring of the Internet, social media, and and, uh, telephone text messages, you really have no means to, to get the message out without facing severe consequences. So I think from that point of view, we really have to be paying more attention to this and, and standing up more to the Chinese regime and not compromising in our dealings with them because we think that we can gain economic benefits by ignoring the gross violations of human rights, including the cultural genocide of the Turkic Muslims in the West and many, many other um, egregious violations of just norms of standard decency and, and uh, commitment to United Nations governance standards, that we, we really have to, to, to not be pretending that this is not going on so that we can sell more in China and stand up for, for what's right and, and for the honest and courageous people who are trying to, to preserve what's good in China in the face of a, of a very harsh and repressive authoritarian one-party regime.
2: Indeed. Well, people can read this letter for themselves. Again, it's up at uh, Laurier.ca. Charles Burton, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
3: Good to speak with you, Rob. Likewise,
2: Likewise. All the best. Charles Burton is an associate professor at Brock University, specializing in Canada-China relations, also a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, McDonald's Laurier.ca. Right now, look, I'm, and I'm supportive of, of strong public health measures, right? And, and everything we're doing to, to contain COVID-19. But at the same time, I mean, they need to make sense as well. I, people are buying in and people understand, I think, the importance of, of social and physical distancing to make sure the world doing our part. But there are obviously things that we can continue to do uh, that, that still fit into that. One of, one of the interesting things I've seen in social media in recent weeks, you've probably seen it too, is what they're referring to as porch portraits. Uh, photographers who are offering to, to take family photos where, you know, the family poses on the front step, the photographer's back uh, at a safe distance. And it's kind of a unique snapshot of these kind of weird times. And I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of neat. And I've seen a lot of people doing this. You And it's a way of of maybe helping photographers who have clearly lost out on a lot of wedding and and grad business. But also a lot of them, uh, even themselves, have been donating uh, some of the money to charities as a result of this. So it's a neat little thing, I I think, as a way of kind of helping people cope with this strange new reality. But not everybody's happy about it. Uh, There's a National Photographers Association called the Professional Photographers of Canada that are actually asking its members to stop doing these porch portraits. They are strongly recommending that these, these uh, sessions stop, even though they've, they've kind of soared in popularity. So is there, is there a concern here? Why, why, why that warning? Well, joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Bill Marsh. Uh, he's uh, an Alberta photographer, much more at BillMarshPhotography.com. Bill, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. How are you? i 'm doing well hope you 're doing well as well. Um, let me ask you first of all where, where did the idea for these porch portraits first
4: come from? Do we know uh, The first person I saw is uh, is Lori creech in uh down in High River. She always does fantastic uh, marketing ideas. Uh, she's a, a wonderful photographer. I saw her first do it. I think she's the first in the world, actually, to uh, to do it. We're, uh, we're colleagues on Facebook and, and friends. So I saw uh, what uh, Lori did, and she did it for just the first weekend. Mm-hmm. And then a um, uh, person I know in Calgary, Neil Zeller, who's doing quite a few, he uh, picked up some slack. And then I've been doing them out in Cochrane and Calgary as well.
2: And what, what kind of interest has it been? I mean, how many have you done, for
4: example? Oh, I, I, I don't know the number. I'm hoping to do 200. It's been fantastic. I started a little uh, Facebook page called uh, Cochrane Porch Portraits, and all of the uh, proceeds uh, go to charity. I, I don't collect any money. I've partnered with big hill haven uh women's shelter i'll swell people could give to their uh, charities of choice but i do have a link on my and it's been fun it's been really really popular
2: Mm -hmm. uh yeah it it certainly seems like it i've seen a lot of these on on social media and you know it's it it is kind of a neat idea so what, what do you make then of these concerns now that have been raised by this this association
4: uh i i respect what they're what they're saying um we don't have a, a guild or a, or a union, so this is, right. this is a, basically a, a club. Um, so it's not like the College of Nurses, it's something that mandates what right. we do. And I have, they've put out a, a few uh, press releases, and I, I read one that talked about you know safety and, and why they're against it. And, uh, for example, ringing doorbells and touching door handles, and, I mean, that's just not... How I do these people contact me mainly through through Facebook um, I, I then get a cell number when I pull up to their driveway I text them saying that I'm there we do a uh, a virtual high five from a, a distance kind of pose them where it'd be fun whether it be their porch or their garage door um, I'm probably six meters away at times even more than that i mean i i'm a yeah. good halfway to the driveway if not all the way with these big lenses we all have and uh we we make it fun we make it brief um and people are contacting, me knowing that there's there's concern. Sometimes people ask me how I try and mitigate things. Again, we talk about no handshakes, no no doorknobs, no ringing of bells, little contact as possible. So I know PPOC has has mentioned some uh, safety precautions why they don't want people doing it, and uh, I, I've I've never been doing those things anyway. So
2: yeah, it seems pretty easy, I would think, to to address the the safety side of things by taking those steps that you mentioned. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, has has there been any concern raised at all by Alberta Health Services or anything like that?
4: Not that, I mean, not that I've, I've read on social media. Certainly nobody has contacted yeah. me. I, I, I'm, you know, we all get our friends with uh, people in Cochrane, it's a small community. They, the town has reached out and they've liked what I'm doing. And there's a few of us doing it. Uh, they did a little kind of video bio on on one of the shoots i did so they were they were pleased uh, on how it went uh, i think the charity is extremely pleased that we're raising money in a very very challenging time for for domestic violence and uh, and people that want to contact me have and and people that you know this they're not interested in this that's that's certainly their uh, their rights but the we've had a blast doing it, it it's i've done as many as uh, eight or nine families in one day wow
2: uh, and again, so as you say, you're in your vehicle, you, you pull up in front of the house, you text the people, they come out, you're at least, as you say, six meters, if not more. So I, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't, I really don't understand where, where the concern is. I mean, maybe there are some who are going right up to the door shaking hands or... Whatever, I, I'm not I'd be, aware I'd be of anybody shocked. doing. That. Yeah, I'd be shocked yeah. if
4: people are. I mean, we're we're all pretty well versed two months in on on what to do. You know, quite honestly, I was uh, grocery shopping just yesterday. I kind of do the shopping for the family, and I, I'm at much more. I'm much more concerned with with well, sure, uh, when I go when I go shopping than when I'm I'm trying to do this. Look, you know, I'm I'm not. I'm not a hero, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a grocery store person. All I'm trying to do is is add a little humor. Most of the time we, we try and make this fun. But I'll tell you what I did Saturday, Sunday that was kind of fun. We had uh, two families that had firstborns, I'm mean, two separate families, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. So two firstborn uh, uh, babies. Uh, one was a, an emergency room nurse that's on mat leave. Typically, these babies would be photographed a ton by a lot of different people, potentially by professional photographers. And they would also be including parents in these photos. Well, now these parents were by themselves. The best they could do is, you know, maybe a selfie. And that certainly didn't. It wasn't something they wanted, so we did these photos both on Saturday and Sunday of two different families, and the joy that you could see in their faces of getting professional shots, I shoot it in color and black and white, they get the the images within a few hours, we both got the images within the same day, and you know, that's I'm just trying to fill a, a tiny little void for people that yeah. might not be getting these pictures of grads and things like that. Plus, people want to kind of document what they were doing during COVID. So I've done all pajama shots and mm-hmm. and people wearing masks and a lot of, lot of Corona beer has <laughs> been in the photos yeah, yeah. As, as props. Lots of I mean, we're you know we're just trying to bring a little bit of joy, and I think that's something that uh, I, I can't write a big check. I can't do. Uh, uh much but maybe this is just a small way that uh, i could be uh making people smile in in very challenging times
2: yeah i agree i I think what you guys are doing is pretty cool and you know as long as we can keep it safe which i I think we are that i I don't see any reason why we should have to shut this down so people want to find out more again it's billmarshphotography.com uh bill thanks so much for making some time for us here today all the best to you
4: all the best to you rob be safe you as
2: well. All right, there you go. There's uh, Alberta photographer Bill Marsh operating primarily in, in Calgary and Cochrane, as he says. And, look, I, you know, with all due respect to the professional photographers of Canada, this association, right, and obviously they've got the interest of, of photographers in mind. But it seems like an overreaction all on their part. And, and I get there are circumstances where, you know, somebody's not being as safe as they should. They're going right up to the door to let the people know that they're there. Uh, They're getting a little too close uh, for comfort in terms of the actual photography. But those, you know, then then give recommendations, right? Say, here's what you need to do. Don't bring the doorbell or knock on the door. Uh, You need to phone or text from your vehicle. Uh, You need to keep uh, uh, an extra safe distance at all times, just err on the side of caution. And as, you know, Bill said, with the lenses they have, you know, six meters, that's, that's no problem at all, you know, keeping it more than a safe distance. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, look, I mean, I, I don't see the concern here. And as far as I'm aware, Alberta Health Services hasn't raised any concern about this. And, and as Bill said, you know, that the idea of bringing joy to people, the concept of joy right now, if you can find it somewhere, if you can help somebody find it somewhere, uh, I think that's a beautiful thing.